carrying on with this little Advent sermon series that we started last week um, that I've called The Reason for the Reason for the Season. Did anybody say that this week a lot? You should. It's really catchy. So, the reason for the reason for the season, the idea being that, yeah, we know that the reason for the season is Jesus. Or if you didn't know that, let me tell you, the reason for the season is Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. However, Genesis 3 gives us the reason for the reason for the season. Why is it that we need Christ to come into the world? Why is it that we need a Savior? Why is it that we need the light of the world to enter in? It's because of the brokenness that we find initiated in Genesis chapter 3. And so we're looking, last week we looked at um, the temptation of Adam and Eve in those opening verses. We talked about the thing that, that, that pulled them towards disobeying God and then ultimately the thing that motivated them to take that faithful step. This week what we're going to look at is when they actually did the, well, I almost said did the deed. No, let's not put it that way. When they actually took that bite of the fruit, they disobeyed God, like what was the aftermath of it? What was the fallout of the fall? So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. I'm going to ask if you would now to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. And if you would, follow along with me as I read this out loud for us together. Starting in verse 3, God's word says this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth in these next few moments and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can go ahead and be seated. So this week I was thinking a lot about the 1984 Winter Olympics. I bet y'all didn't think that I was going to start the sermon that way, did you? Anybody have that on their bingo card? 1984 Winter Olympics. Probably not. But here's some pictures for you. Sarajevo, 1984. Sarajevo at the time was the capital of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia has since um, separated into multiple different countries, so it's a little different now. It's the capital of Bosnia. But they hosted the Winter Olympics this year. And I remember, well, I don't actually remember it. 1984, I was one. And if you're doing the math, yeah, I'm old. So what, Okay. But my parents used to talk about this particular Olympics all the time. So that's where the memory comes from, is their recollection of it. Because this was the first Olympics after the boycott had happened the previous years. So Moscow had hosted the Olympics earlier in the 80s. And because it was in Russia, the Cold War was still going on. Many of the countries around the world did not participate. They boycotted the Olympics. But now, 
84, it's in Sarajevo, everybody's back. All the countries of the world are back participating. There's all this fanfare around the Olympics. Everybody tunes in to see it. And what they ended up seeing is, Hannah, you can go to the next slide, a city like this. This is Sarajevo. Isn't it beautiful? Uh, There's another slide I have for you too. Yeah, just this rolling hills and just this really ancient, beautiful old city that many people in the West didn't know much about at all. Maybe you knew that that's where, you know, Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated at the beginning of World War I. This is where World War I started. Little nerd nugget for you there. But other than that, not many people in the West knew much about this city, and it was just just awe-inspiring how gorgeous and beautiful it was for this particular Olympic Games. And even they, they built these structures for the Olympics that were very, first time that had very modernist architecture, and it was just a lot of excitement around this event. And I still remember my mom and dad talking about how they just, they would tune in every night as much to see the city as they would to see the actual competition of the Games. But here's what happens next. Less than 10 years after the games were hosted there, war breaks out in Yugoslavia and lasts for six, seven, eight years. And this beautiful old city became the battleground for much of this long, they call it the siege of Sarajevo. And I have some pictures for you of what it turned into. And then this one. And then finally we have this kind of before and after picture that you can see. And so this grand, beautiful old city just became overnight, seemingly, this pile of ruins in a lot of places. And even the, uh, the structures that they built for the Olympics had this kind of twisted history now. They served as like military bunkers or graveyards or just they were just broken down and decrepit. I think I have a slide of that of some of the old, uh, yeah, so like that bottom right, that's like the bobsled and then the ski jump and these things that just all of a sudden are broken down and ruined in the midst of this battle. This actually is why my parents talked about the 84 Olympics. It wasn't just because it was such a beautiful city. It wasn't just because this was the first games after the boycott. It was because years later they saw on the nightly news what this city that they remembered in all of its glory now looked like. And I remember my mom saying over and over again how jarring it was to have this memory of the glory and the beauty of the city stand side by side with these images they would see on the evening news each night of this wasteland that Sarajevo had become. Now, the reason I'm starting with this is because I feel like this sentiment, this idea, uh, is a lot of what's going on for us as readers when we enter into reading Genesis chapter 3. Because what we read about tonight, we read about shame, hiddenness, uh, guilt before God, fearing God, all those things, as heavy and as intense they are, as they are, that they are also being held up side by side with the memories that we have of what the Garden of Eden was like before the fall happened. And when you remember the beauty and the harmony of the world before disobedience entered into it, it's all the more jarring and painful to see what the world becomes. Now, this is the drawback 
of starting our Advent series in Genesis 3. What, what it means is that we didn't have time to lead into it with Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. So we didn't have a chance to spend a few weeks just sitting in and soaking up the details about the beauty of the Garden of Eden. We didn't get a lot of time to sort of chew on and process the harmony of the world as God had made it. But so I'm going to have to sort of lean on, on, on the fact that I know some of you guys know some about this already. Uh, some a lot, some maybe just a little. Let me give you just some broad strokes, though, about what the world was like before the fall. Uh, just to put it bluntly, it was incredibly good. There was no pain, no evil, no suffering. Men and women had this trusting, close, familiar relationship with the very God of the universe. Men and women had this trusting, close, intimate, joyful relationship with each other as companions, not as rivals. There was no shame. There was no fear. They were totally sort of blissfully ignorant of all the anxieties and neuroses that so plague our thoughts today. So all this together makes God on the seventh day step back and see all that he's created. This is the end of Genesis 1. And he looks and he says, behold, it is very good. His creation was very good. Life in the garden was incredibly good. And so we're learning all about that in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we arrive at Genesis 3, and all of a sudden, we see that very good become very, very bad. The goodness is the backdrop in which we read all of this. And so if we are going to truly understand what we see here, the hiding, the blaming, the, the guilt, the fear we have to read this through the lens of what was lost. And always remember that. What Genesis 3 is describing is something very good that was lost. So, that's going to be how I sort of divide our observations tonight. I've got three observations about what was lost that we see just from these six verses that we read. And I want to point them out to you guys. So those three observations about what was lost, and then finally we're going to try to wrap it all up with saying, what does this mean for Christmas? So that's the goal for tonight. Let's look at that first thing that was lost. I think I have up here on the screen. What was lost in the fall was a closeness with God. That is men and women's closeness with God. Now before I read the, the actual t verses that I have up here, let me give you some backdrop. We're going to do this a lot tonight. Before we hit the point, we're going to kind of go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and think a little bit about what we knew about Adam and Eve before the fall. So he, he, here's what I want to tell you about what life was like in the garden for Adam and Eve before Genesis 3. They had this intensely close personal relationship with God, so much so that it says that God personally and carefully formed Adam from the dust of the ground, that he breathed life into him. He did the same thing with Eve, forming her from the rib of the man, breathing life into her. He was incredibly close to them. He personally brings the animals to Adam to name each one. Even in our text tonight in Genesis chapter 3, God shows up in the garden, in the cool of the day, 
seemingly to take this garden stroll with the men and women he created. Or I should say the man and woman he created. There was this, this fellowship, this camaraderie, this goodness of just being near and close to the God who made them that Adam and Eve enjoyed every single moment of every single day. But in the fall, all of a sudden, that closeness is lost. And not only lost, it's twisted and turned and in a completely different direction. That's where we're going to pick up. This is starting in verse 8 from our text tonight. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Instead of wanting to be in God's presence, they want to hide. We'll keep going. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Just moments before the fall happened, God's presence and voice invited people into fellowship with him to be near him, to be close to him, to interact with him. And now, Adam hears God's voice, and it makes him afraid. We've done a complete 180 about what the dynamic with God used to look like for men and women. It used to be punctuated by trust and love. Now it's punctuated by fear and hiding. This is the first thing that we see that was lost in Genesis chapter 3, closeness with God. Let's keep going, though. The next thing that I want to point out to you that was lost is innocence. Now, uh, there's got to be a better word for this. I just didn't come up with it this week. But let me try to describe to you what I'm trying to capture here. Uh, It's less about like this courtroom guilt or innocence. In that sense, it's pretty obvious. Adam and Eve lost innocence. They are declared guilty because they've obviously disobeyed God. But what I'm more interested in with this word is kind of the inner life. Our conscience, our mind, our spirit, our soul. Because what, what happens is men and women seemingly have just this life where they are going about their business, not even dreaming of stepping outside of God's will or design. And now all of a sudden, they have this crippling self-awareness and sort of division in their heart of what they should do and what they're drawn to. So Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't tell us too much about the emotional inner life of Adam and Eve. We have this this one statement of Adam where he exclaims with joy about what he feels when he sees Eve. We're going to get to that in a second. But outside of that, all we get is this impression that men and women just got to live in the garden just sweetly savoring their existence. God had made them. God had directed them. And living in his guidelines and design was good. It was so good. I I think I just said this a moment ago, but there's this phrase I remember from philosophy classes when I was an undergrad. Savoring the sweet sentiment of existence. I feel like that's what they did. There's um, also another line, this time from the Bible. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's this refrain that's repeated multiple times throughout the book. Where the writer of Ecclesiastes goes, he says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil and labor. 
think Adam and Eve did a lot of that in the garden. Their inner life was not divided, so therefore it was whole, it was harmonious, and it just was sweet. But now we get to what happens in Genesis 3. We're going to pick up now verse 10. This is, we read a little bit of this a second. Now we're going to continue with it. So Adam said this, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. And then he continues, because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Naked? How do they even know what that means? How did that concept even enter into their mind? I mean, their whole life up until now is just purely existing in the way that God had put them in the garden. And now they have this this weird self-awareness of something distorted and twisted about how they're existing. Now, some people kind of you know, tease here and be like, oh, you know, God's supposed to know everything, but he doesn't know where they are or who told them that they were naked. Yeah, that's not the point here. The point is that God is asking a very profound question and pulling out for us as the reader that no one told Adam and Eve they were naked. God didn't tell them that. The serpent didn't tell them that, at least as far as we know. They figured it out on their own. Their own guilty conscience condemning them. Now their inner life that formerly was united and harmonious is like a house divided against itself. Their conscience bearing witness against them. A a division of spirit, maybe part wanting to follow God and part being pulled another direction to disobey him. There's this just loss of innocence where that just simple following God's path and his design is no longer part of our interior life. We're fragmented, we're torn, we're pulled in so many different directions. And when Adam and Eve somehow figure out that they're naked, what they're doing is having this self-awareness that, hey, I feel like being self-aware is a beautifully good thing for social interactions, but being overly self-aware can be crippling, right? It's one of the things that happens when they lose their innocence. So they've lost their closeness with God. They've lost the innocence of their interior life. We're going to have one more observation here about what they lost. And it's this. They lost peace with each other. Joy in each other, maybe we could say. Trust with each other. So before I read this passage, let me, let me go back. I, I mentioned this a second ago. That when, when Adam is in the garden, God sees that it's not good that he should be alone. So he creates a companion, someone to share life with him together as as someone equally made in the image of God. Her name is Eve, woman, as Adam says. And when he sees her for the first time, here's his exclamation. Genesis 2 says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That is a joyful, exuberant proclamation. Adam is saying, yes. I get to spend my life together in companionship with somebody that shares the image of God with me, who's made in that same way that we can walk and experience life together. He is so elated and excited and overjoyed. Oh, how that changes in just a moment after the two disobey God. Now, here's Adam's reflections on who Eve is. 
after God said, did you eat of the tree I told you not to? Verse 12 picks up. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Just a moment ago, Eve was flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Now she's the scapegoat to throw under the bus to avoid God's gaze. How quickly human beings have turned on each other. And this is, uh, you know, not even acknowledging the fact that, do you see a little, a little hidden note of Adam throwing God under the bus too? The woman whom you gave me. I was rejoicing just a moment ago of this beautiful gift that you gave, but God, you gave me this woman. There's so much built in with this, but the main thing that I want you to see is that right here we have this picture of how quickly humankind went from this trust and camaraderie and companionship to rivalry and enmity and blaming and hatred and jealousy, and I could just keep going and going. So much was lost in the fall. And it, it's intensified when we remember what we had before. To see it now turn to this. Like seeing that beautiful old city of Sarajevo all of a sudden just reduced to rubble and ruins and ash. So, here's where we get to Christmas. The way that we're going to see Christmas coming to bear on these particular ideas is by reminding ourselves that this is the world that Jesus Christ enters into. This is the world the Christ child comes to. Not a Garden of Eden. Not even a kind of Garden of Eden. He comes to a world of brokenness and ruin and rubble purposely to redeem it. He comes to a world divided against itself, neighbor warring against neighbor, sometimes with violence, sometimes just with nasty words of jealousy and envy. He comes to a people who have this fragmented inner life being pulled in all different directions. He comes to a people that have been alienated from God the Father, who instead of, when they hear God's voice, instead of wanting to run to him as their father, they want to hide themselves and conceal themselves. This is the world God, through Christ, comes to. And he has one purpose for it. To restore what was lost. To fix what's been broken. Restoration. It's one of my favorite Christmas words, y'all. And, and the reason why is because I feel like in the church, we need to say this so often. You need to hear it from the pulpit. You need to say it to each other. The reason that Jesus came into the world, the reason he comes at Christmas, the reason he's crucified on Good Friday, the reason he rises again from the dead on Easter Sunday, is not to whisk you away to heaven and start anew somewhere. The reason he does all of that is to restore what was lost, to fix what's been broken, to, to take these things that we're mourning, the loss of closeness with God, uh, an inner alienation, uh, enmity with each other, or excuse me, I, I mixed up my thing there. We've lost closeness with God in our innocence and our peace with each other, and he's saying, I want to bring that back. 
I want to fix those things that have been broken. I've said it before in church. I'm going to say it again. This is a line I heard from seminary all these years ago. One of my professors says, God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk his stuff. He restores it. And that's what Jesus Christ is set out to do as he enters into our world at Christmas time. We're seeing that happen in part already, but we'll see it in full when he comes again. And yeah, you know what? To be technical, I need to say this. Jesus Christ isn't just restoring and that is doing a one-to-one replica of what was been lost before. He's actually restoring all the goodness of the Garden of Eden, but making it even better with what's to come in the future. The book of Revelation, it's wild. You guys need to read this if you haven't seen it already. The last two chapters of Revelation is just a repeat of the imagery of the early chapters of Genesis. There's a garden, there's a tree of life, there's a river running through the middle. It's amazing how it pulls on the images of Genesis. And yet each one of those images are bigger and better and more glorious and more grand than what the garden had been before. Jesus is coming to restore all these things that have been lost, but not just to take us back to the garden, to bring us a garden that's even bigger and better and broader and beyond than what was gone, what had been lost before. Oh, I hate that when I'm just trucking and my English betrays me. Thank God for the Holy Spirit that hopefully will bring the point to your heart even if I mess it up. What was lost in the garden is not lost forever. Because Jesus Christ at Christmas, he's making it new. Making it whole again. Now, I'm going to finish like this. I want to return to a picture that I have of the city of Sarajevo that I showed you about its beauty before the war. I kind of, I kind of tricked you a bit. Maybe some of you guys know this. This is not a picture of the city from the 80s during the Olympics. This is a picture of the city from just a few years ago. It's the city renewed. The city restored. And after many years of war and bombing and destruction, there was a concerted effort by the people of Bosnia to put this city back together brick by brick. In many places, in fact, I wish I could do a close-up. There's one building right by the river that's like the old sort of town hall that is historic. They built it almost identically to what it was before, but they made the colors grander, the foundation sturdier, the windows all of a sudden were double paned so it's not so cold in there. It wasn't just a return to what it was in 1800. It was a restoration, but even grander. This is the picture I have in my head of what it will look like when the Lord, through what he begins on Christmas, is slowly but surely restoring the broken thing, fixing what's been broken. Is that he brings it to its former glory, but even beyond that. The city of Sarajevo experienced some awful devastation. But the city wasn't lost. The Garden of Eden experiences some awful devastation in the fall. But the beautiful things about it are not lost forever. The Christ child is coming into the world. And he's doing it to restore his father's 
good creation. That's a big part of what Christmas is about. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we can see your restoration happening in our lives and our hearts even today. Knowing that it's not a purely future thing, but it's begun already. The work is taking place because Christ arrived on Christmas morn. But I pray that also you'd give us a hope and a trust that that work is continuing into the future and that there's a day coming when Jesus is going to be able to pronounce that the restoration is full and complete and that it is good. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.